You want to make your way toward your seats? We'll, we'll continue on this morning. We're going to be... We're going to be in Acts chapter 15 today. So if you have a if you have a Bible, you want to open up to to Acts 15. Uh, while you get while you get situated there, uh, I want to just take a second to do to do one thing, and that's uh, yesterday for the second year uh, we had a number of people within our congregation who ran in the Kansas City half or full marathon as part of Team World Vision. Um, if you're someone who who ran any any distance down there yesterday with Team World Vision, uh, would you stand? Stand, Austin Lear, <laughs> Erica, come on. Um, I also stand back. I didn't tell you to sit. Stand back up. I also want to. If you're someone who who gave at all uh, or supported. As a, as a spouse, you went down and you cheered on, or as family members, or whatever the case might be, would you also stand up? Yep. All right, now you can sit. Now you can sit. Um, we've, this is the second year that we've partnered with Team World Vision, and the purpose is not just to go out and to run uh, a long distance, although that does become part of it. The purpose is to both raise awareness about and money for the clean water crisis. Um, Team World Vision partners with marathons, half marathons all across uh, America and also around the world. And what happens is you sign up to run, uh, you raise money, and every $50 increment that you raise provides a lifetime of clean water for one person. And so as of this morning, uh, Kansas City's Team World Vision team has raised just under half a million dollars uh, for clean water. And so that is, that's 10,000 people with a lifetime of clean water. This is the third year that Team World Vision has been uh, partnered with the Kansas City Half and Full Marathon. And it was in the middle of last week that over the course of those three years, the cumulative total money raised here by churches and individuals in the Kansas City area went over a million dollars total, which is 20,000 lives forever impacted uh, by a clean water solution in their village and in their their place where they live in Africa. And so uh, I'm I'm humbled and honored to be a part of a church who is engaged with that, Uh, not just those who signed up and ran, but also any of you who supported and and helped out in any way, shape, or form alongside that. This year, LCF was uh, the second highest uh, fundraising church in Kansas City, which is is really excited behind Pleasant Valley Baptist Church across town. And so um, thank you to to those of you who took part in that in any sort of way. Um, I don't know that, you know, we'll, we'll continue, I don't know what it'll look like, if we'll continue to do that perpetually here at LCF or not, but we as a church have had um, a, a large part of having a significant impact for individuals around the world, not just physically bringing the hope of, of clean water to a place which radically changes the future life of, of the people that become the beneficiaries of that, but also spiritually as Team World Vision goes in, they provide water, but they also bring the truth of the gospel into those places. And so there's a huge impact, and I just want to thank you uh, for your part in, in bringing that into reality for people on the other side of the world. So. Thank you.
Uh, we're going to jump into Acts chapter 15 here, but first let's pray uh, and then we'll get started. God, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to come into worship. Like Joe said, that is a joyful, uh, celebratory experience to come and just declare you're the reason we're here. You're the reason we're singing. God is uh, because of you and your grace and your mercy displayed to us through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we open scripture together, as we look at your word, that uh, we would continue to joyfully worship you. God, would you take your words, your truth, and plant them upon our hearts? Show us what it looks like to live in light of those. Uh, God, would your spirit move here among us this morning? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, we're going to look at Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 21 this morning. And in, in the vaguest, most general of senses, it is what is known as the Jerusalem Council. And we're going to look at two things as we walk through that section of Scripture. The first is, how is it that the church engages in a debate amongst itself? There's a, a very uh, healthy debate that takes place in the early church centered around what is the relationship between the Jewish heritage of many of these early believers and their newfound faith in Jesus. How do those two things intersect? How do they link together? How is it that those people are supposed to live that out? And it caused a division in the early church, a division that uh, comes into very sharp focus here in Acts chapter 15. So what does it look like to engage in that kind of debate in a church? And then the second thing we're going to look at is the importance of the outcome that they land on. And so I'm going to start by reading Acts 15 verses 1 to 5. It sheds light on the context of what's happening here. So if you'll join me, it says this. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. When this uh, debate arises, Paul and Barnabas are in the middle of what is Paul's first of three missionary journeys. If you've got one of the little gold books with you, um, on page 23, there's a picture of where Paul goes on that missionary journey. It's the smallest of his three journeys. Uh, but the gospel begins to make inroads into these towns uh, in the area there, in their region, that are mostly Gentile places, no longer Jewish individuals. And as Paul is in one of those towns, Antioch, he and Barnabas are met by some individuals who arrive from Judea who begin to say that in order for a Gentile person to be saved, they have to be circumcised. That's a bigger uh, issue than just the physical act of circumcision. What circumcision symbolized was not just the, the act of being brought into the Jewish family, the people of God in the Old Testament, but it also symbolized a commitment to upholding all of the law all the traditions, ceremonies, do's and don'ts of the Old Testament that we read. And there was a group of men who arrive in Antioch and say, in order to be saved, 
in order to truly experience salvation, not only do they have to place faith in Jesus, but they've got to be circumcised and uphold the law. And it sparks this debate. And because of that debate, Paul and Barnabas decide, you know what, we're going to go to Jerusalem where all the apostles are, where the primary Jewish teachers of the day are, and we're going to settle this once and for all. They want clarity and unity about what is the correct understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they load up and they head to Antioch. And when they get there, the debate continues. I'm going to read from verses 6 down to 21. It says this, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, quote, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the, rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For, uh, for from generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. There's the debate. What we're going to do is we're going to walk through verses 6 through 21 here and just see the way that they conduct this. How does it work? How does it play out? Because I think it's important. It's a good model for how the church can engage on issues of gospel importance and how it is that the church should respond and react. The first thing that happens is that evidence is displayed. It takes two forms. There's some experiential evidence that's brought up and there's some scriptural evidence that's brought up. Peter is the first person that we get an account of what he said. And he stands up in verses 7 through 9, and he recounts what we talked about last week from Acts chapter 10 and from the letters of 1 and 2 Peter. He recounts the reality that he has witnessed with his own eyes the Holy Spirit come upon Gentile believers. And that just like at Pentecost, that was the evidence that something powerful was happening in the lives of those who believe in Jesus Christ. That was for Jewish people at Pentecost. He says, I've seen the same thing happen among the Gentiles. There should not be a distinction. And then in verse 12, Paul and Barnabas stand up and they confirm the same experiential thing. We've watched God do amazing things among Gentile believers. Experience. They watched those play out. In fact, the key piece of evidence there is the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit into Gentile believers. That's the same Holy Spirit that was evidenced in the lives of Jewish men and women at Pentecost. And so their encouragement is for this gathering of elders, this gathering of uh, faithful and authoritative Jewish believers 
to see that as one and the same. What happened at Pentecost with Jewish believers is the exact same thing that happened in these Gentile towns with non-Jewish individuals. But then James stands up. James is the brother of Jesus. He's the same James that writes the epistle of James that's later in the New Testament. And he offers a scriptural support for this. It's verses 16, 17, and 18. It is a reference to Amos chapter 9, Amos the prophet in the Old Testament, verses 11 and 12. If you're someone who takes notes and you want to go back and look at that, Amos 9, 11 and 12. James stands up and he says this. He quotes, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. I could spend a decent chunk of time uh, attempting to explain exactly what it is that the tie that James is trying to make, but an author named John Stott has done a more succinct job of that than I could do up here. He's done it in two sentences. It would take me five minutes because I'm verbose. So this is what John Stott said about, or John Stott says about this quotation from Amos. That God promises first to restore David's fallen tent and rebuild its ruins. And then he explains the meaning of that, which Christian eyes see as a prophecy of the resurrection and exaltation of Christ, who is the seed of David and the establishment of his people. So that, secondly, a Gentile remnant will seek the Lord. In other words, through the Davidic Christ, through Jesus, Gentiles will be included in his new community. Everyone gathered together here in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 would have had an immense understanding of the Old Testament. Their backlog of knowledge of all the aspects of the Old Testament, prophets, narrative, psalms, proverbs, everything. They would have had a huge understanding of Scripture. And when James stands up and he makes this declaration in support of that experiential evidence, they would have understood, without John Stott's help, exactly what James was trying to say. That what God has been doing among the Gentiles is exactly what he promised through the prophets that he would do. That through the work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, his ascension, that that would be the means by which not just Jewish people, but everyone is brought into the community of God's people. What I want us to see most importantly is the framework by which this happens. There's experience and there's scripture. And it is scripture that defines that experiential evidence. Peter Paul, Barnabas, they cannot deny what they've seen the Holy Spirit do in the lives of Gentiles, and so they share that. But ultimately, what gives weight to their experience is the truth of Scripture that supports it. That's the way that as Christians, we should interact with all of our experiences in the world. We see something play out. We watch something happen in and around us. And we don't just draw our own conclusions based on our own thinking on those. We go to Scripture and we say, what does the Bible have to say about what I just experienced? Does it support some sort of obvious truth? Does it redirect me? Does it say that this isn't true? Does it point out the brokenness of the thing that I'm experiencing? That's called having a biblical worldview. That when we look at everything that happens around us in life, it's funneled through the truth of Scripture. That's what these, uh, this group of leaders does in Jerusalem. Peter, Paul, Barnabas, this is our experience, James, and it's confirmed by truth in Scripture. And then what is the result of that? The results are a few. The first is that legalism is defeated. 
Look at uh, verses 9 and 10. Peter says that the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? If it is by faith that the Gentiles have seen the Holy Spirit come upon them and there's no distinction, why would you add to them the weight of the Old Testament law that we could not perfectly uphold? Our fathers couldn't do it. The patriarchs couldn't do it. No one in the Old Testament could do it. You and I can't do it. Why would we add that? Saddle Gentile believers with that. It's legalistic. I want to make an important distinction here, one that I hope uh, we understand. And that's that pursuing a life of holiness in response to the gospel is not legalistic. It's legalistic to say that in order to be saved, you must do these things. It's legalistic to say that in order to be saved, a Gentile believer must be circumcised and uphold the law. Then they're saved. It's not legalistic to say because you've been saved or because of your faith in Jesus Christ, here's how we're supposed to live. Here's what scripture lays out the life of a believer should look like. That's not legalism. That's pursuing holiness. It's sanctification. It's allowing the Holy Spirit to work inside of us to conform us into greater degrees of obedience and likeness to Jesus Christ. It's the order of those things that matters. If you make the obedience a condition for salvation, that's legalistic. If you make the obedience the result of being saved, that's grace-driven sanctification. Legalism is defeated here. The law provided a means by which the Israelite people could know how to act with integrity in a relationship with the Lord, but it did not provide them the power necessary to uphold it perfectly. What the law did was illustrate the reality of their sin. It didn't give them any means by which to overcome it. And so Peter rightfully asks the question, why are you placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our fathers nor we could bear? Why would you do that to them? And as legalism is defeated, grace is upheld. Look at verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. It doesn't matter if you are Jewish or if you are Gentile. It is the grace of the Lord that's going to save you. It is grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ that brings someone into right relationship with the Lord. That's why the Holy Spirit came upon those Jewish men and women at Pentecost. That's why the Holy Spirit is coming upon Gentile women and men in cities all around the region. Peter's emphatic about that. We saw it last week, and it's worth keeping at the center of all of our thoughts about the gospel, that salvation is equally available for all. It becomes kind of the lifeblood of Peter's ministry. And the reason it's equally available for all is not because everyone has the same opportunity to live a righteous life and earn their salvation, but because Jesus Christ lived righteously in your place and earned it for you. That's why salvation is equally available to all. Grace is upheld here. But there's another Outcome. It's in verse 19, 20, and 21. James offers his scriptural support and then he gives a suggestion. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to do four things. Number one, abstain from things polluted by idols. Number two, 
to abstain from sexual immorality. Number three, to abstain from what has been strangled. And number four, to avoid foods that still have blood in them. Then he says, for from the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. It looks like when you read that, that the council of Jerusalem says, yes, it's by grace that we've been saved, but also make sure they do these things. That's not in order for them to be saved. That's because they've been saved. And the encouragement is for them to abstain from what would have been normal practices within pagan religion at the time. Food would have been sacrificed to an idol, a false god. They say, hey, because you've been saved by grace in Jesus, following him means you do not take part in that anymore. Because you've been saved, you don't take part in cult, religious prostitution, and sexual immorality. You don't eat food that's been strangled and offered up to another God. You avoid contact with the blood of a sacrifice made to another God. That's holiness. You've been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. You've got to leave behind these practices that you were involved with before. And what's interesting is that in verse 31, we see what happens when this letter arrives to these Gentile believers. Verse 30 says, So when they were sent off, that's Paul and Barnabas, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they, that's the congregation, rejoiced because of its encouragement. I think one thing that we often are fearful of as Christians within the church is that when we see a brother or a sister in sin, we're afraid to enter in and say the truth of Scripture is that you must walk away from that. We're fearful of that. How are they going to receive it? Are they going to be mad at me? Are they going to think I'm judging them? Are they going to think that I'm being legalistic or something like that? But the truth is that this encouragement to flee from these things in response to their salvation arrives as an encouragement to those believers in Antioch that the leaders of the church in Jerusalem would view them as equal brothers and sisters in Christ and then encourage them with how to live a life in response to their salvation. That's an encouragement to them. And it can be the same for us in the church today so long as we present the truth of Scripture with the love and grace of Jesus Christ. You've been saved. These things, these sinful practices are only going to draw you away from the Lord. Flee from those. Abstain from them. Holiness is encouraged, and then ultimately unity is achieved. Peter, Barnabas, Paul, James, this entire assembly in Acts chapter 15, they come to the important conclusion that the dividing line, the only boundary marker between eternal separation from God and eternal salvation is the grace of God accepted through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no distinction. It doesn't matter who you are. And that unity, that foundational belief, has brought millions of people the world world over, billions of people throughout history into right relationship with Jesus Christ. We sit here today because in Acts 15, this group of, of people got it right. In Paul's second and third missionary journeys, he's going to go further and further out away from Jerusalem into further and further cities. The gospel is going to reach wider and wider and more and more Gentiles are going to be brought into faith. I don't think that there's a very high percentage of people within our church who are of Jewish ancestry. There certainly are a few. But it doesn't matter what your ancestry is, because the grace of God through the work of Jesus Christ is the thing 
that we must have faith in in order to be saved, and nothing else matters. It doesn't matter what your heritage is. It doesn't matter who you are or what your ancestry is. It's available to everyone. And the important conclusion there, grace, is what I want us to spend the rest of our time talking about. There's a healthy model for how to debate within the church that we present evidence, we look at experience, we see it through the lens of Scripture, we come to the truth of God, we we negate what isn't true, we uphold what is, and then we strive for unity. That's the way we that's the way we disagree within the church. What is our experience? What does Scripture say? What is the truth? What do we uphold? How can we find unity? What is upheld here, grace, is an incredibly important thing for us to understand. I think most of us have a general cognitive understanding that it is a gracious act of God that he sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to die on the cross on our behalf. But God's grace does not begin in scripture when Jesus arrives. In fact, it is God's grace that informs the entirety of the way he interacts with sinful humanity. And so I want to take a few minutes here, um, maybe like eight or nine minutes to wrap this up in order to show as we've been reading scripture since the beginning of the year, from Genesis all the way up to this point, just how important God's grace is toward humanity. Grace defined is God's unmerited favor toward humanity who does not deserve it. In fact, it is because of the sinfulness of humanity, the fact that we don't deserve the goodness of God, that we know about his grace. He is holy and we are not. And in response to his holiness, our sinfulness deserves just punishment. That's what we deserve. And yet throughout scripture, we see the justice of God and the grace of God working hand in hand. An author, Carl Truman, in his book, Grace Alone, says it this way. If God allows our unholy rejection of him to stand, he contradicts his own holy nature. The answer is grace. Action on God's part, motivated by love and shaped by holiness, which takes account of the seriousness of sin and yet brings sinners back into communion with him. Grace is what characterizes the way that God deals with the rebellious and sinful humanity all throughout Scripture. Our sin is rebellion. It's an open rejection of God as God. And so how do we see grace throughout Scripture? Well, we see grace in God's inclination towards sinful humanity. Grace is absolutely an attitude and a disposition that God possesses. And right from the beginning, in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, we see that disposition towards sinful humanity. Adam and Eve are told, if you eat the tree from that fruit, you will surely die. They eat the fruit, and yet God moves toward them. Death comes into the world as a result of sin. They are certainly going to die, but they don't die in the moment. Instead, they're extended, we're extended, what is often referred to as common grace. The fact that you woke up this morning despite your sin is an act of God's grace. Genesis makes it clear that sin deserves death. Romans, Paul makes it clear the wages of sin is death. And yet, despite all of our sin, we woke up breathing this morning. That's an act of God's grace. It is his inclination toward all of humanity to be gracious. From the moment of Adam and Eve's first sin, the story of God's interacting with humanity is a story of grace. We see grace in God's initiation of action towards sinful humanity. 
and is initiation of action towards sinful humanity. Grace isn't merely a sentiment or an attitude or disposition of God, though it is that, but it also compels him into action. I think it's worth seeing this throughout all of Scripture, and so I just want to give a really brief overview of some of the things we've talked about over the course of this year. God's covenant with Abraham is an act of grace. Abraham didn't do anything to deserve to be called by God and to have his people be the children of God, to be the people of God. His family line is chosen 100% by God's grace to be the means by which all the nations of the earth will ultimately be be blessed. His family is a people that are called, created, and sustained by the grace of God throughout all of the Old Testament. The same is the true for the church today. If you're here this morning and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you didn't do anything to merit your salvation. It was an act of God's grace. He called you to himself. He made you into a new creation. He sustains you in your relationship with him. Grace is essential to the identity of God's people in the Old Testament, and it is essential to the identity of God's people in the church today. The law and the sacrificial system in the Old Testament are an act of God's grace. They display that God takes the initiative in revealing how sinful humanity can relate to him. Scripture makes it clear that sin absolutely must be dealt with. And in order for that to be the case, God makes sin clear. What what is sinful and what is not? He gives the law to the Israelite people. And if it needs to be dealt with justly, he gives them the opportunity, the way by which to do that, this sacrificial system, which ultimately culminates in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. In both of those, we see God graciously reaching down in order to satisfy the demands of justice towards sin, despite the fact that he is not the sinner. Religion says that you do everything you can in order to bring yourself up to God's level, to earn your way into his presence. But the grace of God in the gospel says that he does everything in his power to bring us up to him. He has come down in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He satisfies the means of justice. The prophets and and all of the prophecy in the Old Testament, those are acts of God's grace. To give these verbal promises to the Israelite people that someone would come to ultimately redeem Israel, to give these verbal promises to all of the world that everyone will be blessed through the Savior and Redeemer of humanity, God's graciously alerting his people to the fact that at the perfect time, he's going to send someone who will finally and fully save and redeem us. And then ultimately what happens is that we see grace personified in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, sent for sinful humanity. Titus 2.11 says the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Grace with flesh on is Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate gracious act of God in history in response to the sinfulness of humanity. His death on the cross is the ultimate satisfaction of the justice of God toward the sin of humanity. God's grace and his response to our sin is Jesus Christ. That is his physical embodiment. These Jewish Christian leaders and elders who are gathered together in Acts chapter 15, they have all that Old Testament knowledge in mind. They have seen and heard of the work of Jesus Christ. Most of the people gathered there walked alongside him for a number of years. They watched him die on the cross. And their decision in Jerusalem about 10 years after that death is one that has been fought for throughout all of the church's history. And that is that salvation is by grace alone. 
nothing else. That in all of his actions toward humanity for all of time, God has acted with grace and it culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. That is a decision that we have been wrestling with. It's a reality that the church has been wrestling with ever since this moment. Because as sinful, broken human beings, we're bent toward thinking we need to add something in order to be saved. That ultimately, the thing that's going to save me is Jesus and me. That I understand that God was gracious in sending Jesus to the earth to live and die on my behalf, but I'm going to have to tack something else on there to truly save myself. I'm going to behave a certain way or attend church enough or do enough good things, say the right stuff. I'm not going to cuss. I'm not going to do A, B, C, and D. And then, in combination with Jesus, I will be saved. That is just not true. In fact, 500 years ago this year, Martin Luther walked up to the door of a church and he tacked to the door what are known as the 95 Theses. They were what sparked the Reformation of the church. And they're built on this five-fold kind of reality that we see in Scripture. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the other two are as demonstrated in Scripture alone and to the glory of God alone. In fact, it's the 62nd of those 95 theses in which John uh, or Martin Luther says, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the treasure of God's people. The glory of the grace of Jesus Christ. Carl Truman says this, grace is powerful, overwhelming, transformative. It shatters our notions of autonomy. It heals our deepest wounds and it meets the deepest longings of the human heart. There's nothing else on earth that can do that. That grace is worth celebrating and submitting to. It's worth rejoicing in and fighting for. It's worth proclaiming to the ends of the earth. It is good news that you can't do anything to save yourself, but that Jesus has done everything in order to save you. It's the greatest news in all of human history. The early church, their progress is built on this truth. Today's church, our progress, the expanse of the gospel and the kingdom of God is built on the message of the grace of God. I want to end this morning with a story of an individual. I'm going to invite the worship team to come to come on up. That man's name is John Newton. He lived in the 1700s. He spent the vast majority of his young life heavily involved in the British slave trade. In fact, it was at age 11 that he took his first voyage on a ship with his father that took part in that process. And for years after that, he was on boats back and forth, England to Africa. His, his life and his behavior were so reckless and uh, so just outright, oftentimes evil and awful, that he was often left at a port because a ship just didn't want him around anymore. They would pull into a place, you know, do whatever they needed to do in that port, and then let John Newton know, by the way, you're staying here, and we're continuing on. And then he would have to find his way onto another ship. It was in 1748, in March, when he found himself at the helm of a ship that got swallowed into a massive storm. And from about 1 p.m. to midnight, he worked at the helm of that ship in order to keep it upright. 
In fact, at one point, he ended up tying himself to the helm of that ship because the wind was so strong it was blowing him away from it. And it was in the middle of that experience, that uh, 11-hour ordeal at the helm of that boat, that he began to remember some of the truths that his mother taught him when he was young. And he said that that lonely 11 hours was enough time for reflection for me to realize that I needed a savior. He would write later that he doesn't think that it was actually on the boat that night that he actually experienced salvation, but it was on the boat that night that he realized that he needed salvation. He would go on to place his faith in Jesus Christ and to engage in a ministry whereby uh, a small church of people would come to his home every Sunday night and they would study scripture and worship together. And he would take common British melodies and he would give them uh, new words. And through that, he wrote hundreds of hymns. And on one particular Sunday night, his small church arrived at his house and he presented to them what is possibly today the most famous hymn ever written. He presented to them the following words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It had been years since his experience on that boat, and yet grace was just as meaningful and precious to him. It was the true treasure of his heart. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that should be the same for you every day of your life. No matter how many years you get beyond your own salvation, your own experience with the grace of God for the first time, it is the true treasure of your life. It's worth submitting to, rejoicing in, fighting for, proclaiming to the ends of the earth. If you're here this morning and you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, maybe you're here and you, you come to church regularly or you've gone to church growing up or whatever the case might be, but you think that maybe your presence here is going to be the thing that saves you or some uh, scale or rubric of behavior is going to be the thing that saves you. I hope you hear this morning that God is reaching out to you, not with a list of rules to legalistically follow in order to save yourself, but with the message of grace in the person of Jesus Christ. And the only means by which you are saved, the only dividing line is faith in that grace is faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. We're going to end our time together singing, uh, celebrating the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And we're going to start with the song, Jesus Paid It All. That is the message of the grace of God. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Let's stand and sing.